You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 22, 1 through 16. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we approach your word with humility. And with anticipation, in humility because what we encounter in the word of God was breathed out by you. So when we work our way through the scriptures, we are hearing from you. We approach this time also with anticipation because we believe that You desire to work in your people for your glory and for our good. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would actively work in our hearts and our lives, that you would clear unnecessary distractions away, that you would connect the truth of Scripture to our lives, and that we would go from this place this morning different changed, having encountered the living and active 
word of God. We pray all of this in the strong name of our risen and victorious King Jesus. Amen. This past week, I stumbled across the following personal testimony. This is what it said. From childhood, I loved astronomy. I grew up in an unbelieving home. Night after night, I'd gaze at the stars, clueless about a creator, but yearning for something greater than myself. One night, as I stared through my telescope at the great galaxy of Andromeda with its trillion stars, 2.5 million light years away, I was filled with awe. I longed to explore its wonders and lose myself in its vastness. I read fantasy and science fiction stories of other worlds, of great battles and causes. I knew that the universe was huge beyond comprehension, but my wonder was trumped by a sometimes unbearable sense of loneliness and separation. In retrospect, I, I think I wanted to worship, but I didn't know what or who to worship. I wept not only because I felt so insignificant, but also because I felt so disconnected from the significant one I did not know or know of. Several years later, at age 15, after attending a church youth group, I, I opened a Bible and saw these words for the first time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then I read verse 14, the greatest understatement ever. He made the stars also. A universe 100 billion light years across containing countless stars and the Bible makes them sound like a casual add-on. I quickly realized that this book was about the person who made the universe including Andromeda and Earth and me. I had no reference points when I read the Bible. All of it was new, intriguing, sometimes confusing, and utterly disorienting. But when I reached the Gospels, something changed. I was immediately fascinated by Jesus. I'd been an avid reader of fiction, but I knew this wasn't fiction. I knew Jesus wasn't just a character in a story. I soon came to believe that he not only lived 2,000 years ago, but that he still lived. Everything about Jesus of Nazareth struck me as completely believable. And somehow, I knew he was the one my heart had always longed for. By a miracle of grace, Jesus touched me deeply, gave me a new heart, and utterly transformed my life. Friends, that is the story of how God gloriously saved someone most of you have heard of. Christian author Randy Alcorn. Stories of God sovereignly saving sinners 
never get old. There is nothing that so magnifies the majesty of God as a transformed life. This morning we will be reminded of one of the most dramatic and history-altering accounts of spiritual transformation. But it comes at a somewhat unusual time and in the midst of unexpected circumstances. Remember where we concluded our study last week. Paul has arrived back in Jerusalem. Angry, unbelieving Jews have incited a riot based on false information. Paul's been seized and beaten. And now, as verse 37 records, he's being taken to the barracks as they figure out what to do with him. At this point, Paul's life is hanging in the balance. I think it's good for us to remember these are real people, real circumstances, real danger. Beginning in verse 37, Paul turns to the angry mob and he makes his defense by explaining his true identity. But as we'll see, Paul can't explain who he is without establishing whose he is. Look at verse 37 of chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Brothers and sisters, here is what I want you to see this morning. As Paul begins to speak to the gathered crowd, he wants them to know three truths about himself. And they're quite simple. First, he is a faithful Jew. Second, he is a transformed sinner. And third, he is a commissioned witness. Now let me briefly show you how he establishes all three of these truths about himself. First, let's look at Paul, the faithful Jew. Think about the last four verses of chapter 37, those that I just read. Even before Paul gains the freedom to speak, he has to correct a misconception about who he is. This tribune thinks that maybe Paul is someone the Jewish historian Josephus talks about. An Egyptian who stirred up a revolt and led an army of 4,000 assassins, literally dagger men, out into the wilderness. And now was planning to take over Jerusalem. Knowing that, we can better understand why this was a misunderstanding that Paul wanted to clear up pretty quickly. As if to say, no, 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 that's, that's not me. But it makes sense that you would be so concerned about me if you thought that's who I was. Paul makes it clear that he is a Jew from, from a well-respected city. And, and therefore, in this culture, he deserves to be heard. 
Now, once Paul has properly identified himself, he launches into his defense. And it's, it's clear pretty quickly that one of his claims is to convince the crowd that he is not only a Jew, but he's a faithful Jew. And you'll see why this is important. Notice how he begins again. Look with me at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became, became even more quiet. Paul addresses the crowd in a most respectful way. He is not belittling them. He is not angry with them. He is deeply respectful and identifies with them, even though they stand in violent opposition to him. Th there's a sense of calm that can only come from someone who knows the security that is only found in, in Christ. I, Howard Marshall, explains why Luke records that Paul addresses them in the Hebrew language. This is what he writes. Many Jews from the dispersion could not speak the Hebrew or Aramaic languages. Even the greatest Jewish scholar of the first century, Philo of Alexandria, could not read the books of Moses in Hebrew. For Paul to address the people in their own tongue was an effective way of commanding their attention and their sympathy. But it also emphasizes Paul's claim to be, in every sense, a Jew. Paul begins his defense by showing respect to those he's speaking to. Notice what he says next, verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul was born into a Jewish family, educated in Jerusalem by a well-known member of the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel, a rabbi known for his strict Pharisaic teaching. Paul then claims that he was zealous for the law. In fact, he was as zealous as anybody listening to him. And then he proves it. He proves it by offering a, a real example. Look at verse 4. I persecuted this way, right, referring to Christianity, those who embrace the gospel. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So friends, Paul has explained a very important part of his story by going back to the beginning and showing the crowd how he was raised to think and act just like them. He is not a hater of Jewish orthodoxy, but, but something has profoundly changed Paul. But even though Paul will go on to explain how he has been radically transformed by Jesus, he still shows a sensitivity to his audience. He does this in hopes that they will see his transformed life not, listen to this, not as a rejection, 
of Judaism, but as the true version of Judaism. This is what's happening in verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 12. This is after his Damascus road meeting with Jesus. He says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. This, this would have established Ananias as a credible witness to Paul's encounter with Jesus. Ananias wasn't a crazy guy. He could be trusted. Verse 13, Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, notice this, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Friends, the term God of our fathers immediately links Paul with Ananias the devout observer of the law, and with the God of Israel. In, in other words, Paul and Ananias are servants of the God of the Old Testament. Do you see what Paul is doing here? His emotional defense is actually an appeal to the crowd to embrace the gospel. Here's how John Stott so helpfully explains this. Looking, looking over Paul's whole defense, he has argued that he himself was a loyal Jew, not only by birth and education, but still. True. He, has, he was now a witness where before he had been a persecutor, but the God of his fathers was still his God. He had not broken away from his ancestral faith, and he hadn't apostatized. He stood in direct continuity with it. Jesus of Nazareth was the righteous one in whom prophecy had been fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, Paul is appealing to the gathered crowd to see that their ardent religious system leads to Jesus. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the promised Messiah and perfect King. Paul wants those who are clamoring for his death to experience eternal life through Jesus. Just like he had. In fact, this is the second truth. Paul is a faithful Jew but he is also a transformed sinner. And the crowd needed to understand this. So let's see this in the text. Paul, the transformed sinner. Go back to verse 6 with me. As Paul was zealous in his Jewish, Jewish faith, believing that anyone following the way should be put to death, some, something unexpected happened. Something Luke has already recorded back in chapter 9. But now we get to hear Paul tell his own story. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. Now, again, imagine the setting. He's standing before this crowd that wants to put him to death. The boldness. The, the calm. 
he must have possessed to save us. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what what shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, and if you remember this when we were talking about it in in chapter 9, just the beauty of these two words. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. What a glorious account of God's amazing grace. This is the story of a life transformed, not by human effort or achievement, but by the overcoming grace of God. Paul wasn't looking for the gospel. In fact, he wanted to destroy the gospel. He wanted to destroy the gospel by murdering those who boldly declared it. People like Stephen. This is hardly someone who's seeking out the truth. You see, friends, Paul believed. Paul believed that he was earning God's favor by doing all the right things. Remember, he was zealous for the law. And he believed that the gospel was an attack on what was right Certainly God would be pleased by his righteous actions as he relentlessly tried to suppress what he believed was a dangerous lie. Now there, there's a temptation for us to dismiss Paul's erroneous way of thinking. Prior to his Damascus Road experience, Because his religious actions took the form of physical beatings, separating families, and being party to the murder of church leaders. We don't see that as someone who's trying to earn God's favor. We, We think, of course, he was in the wrong. But hold on. Pull back for a second from the violent nature of what he was doing and consider what motivated his actions. It was the belief that salvation could be earned. 
that God accepts people based on what they do. Paul believed that he could work his way into heaven. But what does this text and the testimony of the whole Bible make clear? There is only one way to heaven. And that is to experience a saving encounter with Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through Jesus alone. Paul did nothing to transform himself. He was acted upon. In fact, search the text. Try to come up with something Paul did. He was blinded. He was knocked down. He was confronted. He was led by the hand. He was given his sight. He was given instruction, and then he was baptized. This is a story of someone that God captured, rescued, and made new. See, friends, Paul is not the main character of this story. He is simply the recipient of the love and the grace and the power of the main character. This story doesn't glorify and magnify Paul, does it? It glorifies and magnifies the one who gloriously interrupts Paul's miserable life and completely transforms him. To be clear, Paul didn't change. Paul was changed. And he was changed dramatically and eternally by Jesus. We can see, we can see this change, this transformation in three obvious ways, which I will just tell you and I won't expound on them. First, Paul submits. Verses 7 through 11, referring to Jesus as Lord and submitting to him. Paul submits, then Paul obeys, verses 12 through 16, going to Ananias, waiting on instructions, and then being baptized. Paul submits, Paul obeys, then Paul goes, verses 17 through 20, first returning Jerusalem and then being sent to the nations. How can you know if you're a true follower of Jesus? Well, this would be a good place to start. A true believer submits to Jesus as Lord, obeys his word, and engages in his mission. All of this makes one thing abundantly clear to us. This is the story of a transformed sinner, someone who is made new by Jesus. When I read the account of Paul's conversion to Christ, I always think about the, the wonderful lyrics of Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, Right? This is what Paul experienced on the Damascus Road. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, this, this is what we desire for every person. That you would experience the rescue of Christ. 
that you would know the joy of being forgiven and accepted, not by any effort of your own, but by the grace and kindness of God through his son, Jesus. This brings us to the final truth Paul establishes about himself. He is a faithful Jew, a transformed sinner. And finally, he is a commissioned witness. Paul, the commissioned witness. I alluded to it already, but we see this in verses 14 and 15. Look at the text. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you. So Ananias is talking to him again. We've already read this, but think about it again. God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one. To hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him. To everyone. Of what you have seen and heard, which is what? The gospel. The good news concerning Jesus. I love how one author simply says, Paul was not consumed by God's wrath, but commissioned to God's work. Paul was not consumed by God's wrath, but commissioned to God's work. Friends, God had chosen Paul to see and hear, and now he is commanded to go and tell. He is commissioned by God as a gospel witness to all people. Our text this morning has invited us to consider again the glorious conversion of Paul. What we see in Paul is a lost sinner, spiritually dead and desperate. Left to himself, Paul had no hope, he had no way out. He had to be acted upon. On the basis of sovereign grace, God intervened and interrupted Paul's hopeless life and rescued him. Not because of anything that Paul did or because of who Paul was, but because God is rich in mercy and great in love. That's why this really isn't about Paul. I mentioned to you as we began this morning that stories of God's uh, of God sovereignly saving sinners never get old. Uh, that there is nothing that so magnifies the majesty of God as a transformed life. We've seen this in Paul, but we also have the great privilege of hearing it hundreds of times as God brings new people. <clears throat> to himself, and then into this faith family. Do you realize this is, this is why we share some part of everyone's story? Yes, we want you to know something about them. But we also feel like everybody's testimony is an opportunity to magnify the majesty of God. We do this by testifying to his overcoming grace in the lives of all sorts of people. So I think a great way for us 
to move from the text we've studied this morning to observing the Lord's table together is to hear parts of the testimonies of nine new members of Redeemer. At their core, each story you will hear is exactly the same as the Apostle Paul. A life transformed by Jesus alone and then commissioned by Jesus to be his witness to everyone who will listen. So, let me conclude this sermon this morning by inviting those who are being introduced as members of this church to come forward. And as you have heard the Apostle Paul's story of God's overcoming grace in his life, let me now share with you uh, the stories of, of many others. And I hope, I hope in hearing these stories, you will stand in awe of God's goodness and his grace. So we'll begin with Ben and Alyssa Krinsky. Could you just identify yourself in some way? There you go. Great. This is what Ben writes. I began my life uh, being raised by two Christian parents. There was a lot of love, encouragement, teaching, and discipline. My parents had me and my two sisters attend church with them, go to preschool at our church, participate in all the churchy activities. This meant doing Sparky's, Awana, and all the age-appropriate groups. I didn't know, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, it was years of continually hearing the gospel and the good news of Christ. Reflect, reflecting back on my years of VBS, I, I recall almost every summer, ages 6 through 10, praying to accept Christ. It didn't mean anything to me, but I did it since I looked around during the prayer and I saw that everybody else was doing it. I did not grasp that my evil sin separated me from my creator. I felt conviction just as any child does when a parent scolds them, but, but not of my sin against God. I did not begin to grasp my depravity until my dad explained it to me, which is the duty of every father to explain depravity to their children. I was 11, and he explained the gospel simply to me, explaining my desperate need for Christ, what the cross did, and what faith really meant. After that, my dad helped me. We prayed, and I confessed my sins and declared Christ as my king. Alyssa writes, I was saved when I was four years old. My mom was helping me learn verses for Awana, and one of the verses had something to do with salvation. I asked my mom what that meant. She told me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again, and that if I believed that and accepted Christ as my Savior, <clears throat> I could be saved and go to heaven. I said, yes, I believe that, and then prayed with my mom and confessed my sin and asked Jesus to be my personal Savior. When I was seven years old, I was baptized by immersion as a step of faith and public declaration of my new life in Christ. I love then what Alyssa writes near the conclusion of her testimony. She says, even though I was very young when I was saved, I know my faith is secure 
because I continue to trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for my eternal security. Redeemer family, would you welcome Ben and Alyssa into the membership of this church? Kaylin Trapp. Kaylin writes, my testimony is just like any other one story of God's saving grace. I grew up going to church off and on with my parents and siblings. I was involved with Awana programs as well. I'd heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, but didn't understand the importance of it until the fifth grade. Our family dynamic had changed drastically since my mom was diagnosed with a terminal illness. I began to ask questions of the world and the purpose of it all. This is when I understood that I myself was a sinner. I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to help me walk this life that I was so confused about. I know I was saved. And she says, but I didn't start growing in my faith until my sophomore year of high school. And then she recounts just God's steadfast love and unfailing grace in her life through great difficulty. And so I hope that some of you will introduce yourself to Kaylin and get together with her and hear more of her story. But it was our joy to receive her into the membership of this church. Redeemer family, would you welcome Kaylin? Susan Thomas, as Susan talks in her testimony about hearing and believing the gospel when she was young through the ministry of her, uh, the church that her mother's family attended, which was a church of Christ. And uh, there's a part of her testimony that I love. So if you want to hear Susan talk more about her early life, you go ahead and do that. But I love this part of her testimony. Uh, she says, after my son John married uh, and his family began, became members of Redeemer Bible Church, I visited whenever I was in town. I was very impressed by the way the people I met in the church made God a central part of their everyday lives. I happened to sit down over coffee after one service with Carlene Gotti. We talked about the sermon we had just heard, and it was clear to me that she was a very godly woman. After I moved here and started attending the church regularly, I met other godly women. Judy Dixon McGuire personally invited me to the women's Bible study. That first Bible study changed my life. So I hope that's an encouragement uh, to all of you. And Susan's testimony is a wonderful story of God's grace. And it was our joy to welcome her into the membership of this faith family. Redeemer, would you welcome her? Mark and Hannah Schmoyer. Hannah writes, I was brought up in a Bible-believing family, attended church regularly. She talks about uh, praying the sinner's prayer when she was five years old and then understanding more and more about the gospel in her early teen years. But then she writes this, through periods of doubt and rebellion in my time in college, God continually reminded me that nothing can pluck me from his hand. And that as Romans 5, 8 states, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My identity is rooted in Christ, which has shaped my life, guided my decisions, and provided boundless hope 
in trying seasons of grief, change, and growth. Mark writes, I grew up in a Christian household with a pastor as my dad. I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> the Bible was regularly taught in my home. It says, when I was around five years old, my oldest sister, I love the different circumstances of everybody's story. When, when I was five years old, my oldest sister and I were playing together, and she asked me if I knew where I would go if I died. I did not know. And she said that in order to be with Jesus, I had to accept him into my life. Later that night, I asked my dad to pray with me, and I surrendered my life to him. My faith did not seem to become real and personal until my early teen years when I wrestled with questions of God's existence, the power of prayer, and whether it all mattered. God was faithful to me and provided grace and encouragement to me as I returned to him and followed uh, his word. So it was our joy to receive Hannah and Mark into the membership of this church. Redeemer family, would you welcome them? Paul and Patty Tattersall. Patty writes, As I sat at a luncheon table at a country club in Washington, D.C., with women who had attended several Bible studies that I held at my home in Maryland, the Lord called me. I had been striving a good part of my life to please God and know him, but he spoke to my heart and mind through the speaker that day and claimed me for his own. I had never heard the gospel presented before like this. I realized that I desperately needed forgiveness for my sins, and through Christ, I could receive that forgiveness and him to be my redeemer and savior and king. I was bowled over, but felt a bit of self-consciousness as the speaker asked those who would like to receive the gift of Christ to, to mark our place cards and speak to her after the luncheon. I did both. Felt overwhelmed with gratitude and excitement and couldn't wait to call Paul and tell him that God had saved me and promised to sanctify and prepare me to see him one day face to face in heaven. Then she says, perhaps you wonder if the gospel had been shared before and I just never paid attention. I don't think that's true. I heard much about the greatness and goodness of God but not any direct call for repentance and my great need of a Savior who was Jesus and the great gift of his Holy Spirit to lead, direct, teach, and change me. I grew up in a church-going family, the middle child of three. I sang in the choir, played the organ, went to Sunday school and services. I felt I loved the Lord, but he was a serious and far away entity until that day. Paul writes, as a child, I was regularly transported to Sunday school by my grandfather or father, though neither attended church themselves. I continued through high school enjoying attending church and church youth groups, and I can think of no time that I doubted the existence of God or the divinity of his son, Jesus. As a college sophomore, I took a religion course for which the text was The Nature and Destiny of Man by Reinhold Niebuhr. This thoroughly grounded me in the doctrine of the sinfulness of all mankind. But then he writes this. In 1973, 
there was a sovereign intervention by the Lord. Patty attended a meeting of a Christian fellowship of women, which you just heard about, which she made a personal commitment to Jesus and was born again. Thereafter, we had a long-running argument about whether I was born, whether I was born again Christian. We settled the discussion by my committing my life to Christ in the summer of 1976. It has been our joy to get to know Paul and Patty a little bit. Welcome then them into the membership of this church. Redeemer, would you welcome them as well? Lacey Pearson. Lacey writes, I have a very similar story to many others where I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home. I do not have a memory where I can remember a specific time of coming to believe and trust in Christ. I feel like I always believed. My, my dad would talk about Jesus with us often and tell us what Jesus did for us and how we needed to repent of our sins. My family has gone through some inconceivable times. From my stepmom being murdered when I was 13 to my brother committing suicide just nine years ago. All through these heartbreaking tragedies, I never lost my faith, nor did I ever question why God did this. She says, I attribute this to the amazing faithful support of my dad and several members of Redeemer. She writes, I grew up in this church and participated in Wednesday night Bible classes and summer camps. I had some very good friends, but... Over time, they either changed churches or stopped coming. I stopped coming to church regularly when I was 17, and I was disengaged and didn't feel the connection I once had. I would come with my dad when he would guilt me into it and on certain holidays, but I never had any interest in it. When my dad started to decline in his health and was diagnosed with early-onset dementia, I knew how much it meant to him for me to come to church every Sunday. That since then... Uh, and she says, and since I had taken his keys away, I had to commit to take him. And I was glad I did. She says, it has been approximately four years that I've been coming on a regular basis, and my relationship with the Lord has grown so deeply. I started wanting to build those relationships again with people here and be more involved. My hunger for wanting to learn more of the Bible grew, so I started going to the women's Bible study classes in the fall of 2018 and have continued on with the women's classes to now the theology nights. I also joined John and Elaine Pratt's community group, and I'm so encouraged and excited to see where else this will take me in my faith and my relationship with not only the Lord, but with my brothers and sisters. I've met some incredible people here who have helped support me in some very difficult times recently, and I'm so grateful for them. It was never something I thought about or felt it was important to be a member here, until this past year where I wanted to have this. I wanted to be a part of this and to have others know who I am and for me to know them. It was a joy to welcome Lacey into the membership of this church. Redeemer, would you welcome her as well? Applause. 